Let's dive into our passage this week, and it is Luke chapter 7. If you'd turn that up, that would be great. Now, Luke chapter 7 has four stories in it. And those four stories, as is common with Luke's method of presentation, those four stories are really designed to help us understand what it is that Jesus has said previously. You remember when Jesus came out of the wilderness and shared in his hometown of Nazareth that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him because he had been anointed to preach good news. And there, by quoting Isaiah 61, Jesus articulated his manifesto of the kingdom, his, his starting point for the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Messiah and his expectation for what it was that the gospel would do that he had come to share. But you'll remember that there were categories of people, people who were prisoners, people who were blind, people who need to be set at liberty. And in that, in that presentation that he gave to Nazareth, he was of course rejected by his friends and family. But in the following verses, as Luke rolls out the narrative of Jesus, we see that everything that Jesus proclaimed in Nazareth was fulfilled in a demonstrable way. Jesus saw people who were captive set free. Jesus saw those who were struggling with sickness healed. And in particular ways, the prophecy that he read out was fulfilled. Well, last week, we looked at Luke's account of Jesus sharing the Sermon on the Mount. And there in Luke's gospel, we have the four blessings and the four woes. And the four blessings, you'll remember, are people who are poor, people who are hungry, for those listening at home on some form, of, um, some form of recording device, you can't tell what I'm doing right now, but I'm actually putting these words on a whiteboard, but maybe you should be here next week. Poor, <laughs> hungry, weep, and insult. These are the four, these are the four ways in which the, the people who receive the kingdom are, are able to understand themselves. They're people who are poor because they're bowed down. Remember the word for poor is one who crouches. It's not specifically monetary poverty that, that Jesus is referring to. But of course, monetary poverty will cause a person to be bowed down. But this is what Matthew calls poverty of spirit. The poor who are broken by life. They are empty of answers and solutions. They are weeping over the losses that they wish had been wins. And they are those who suffer the insults of others. Unjust and unkind insults. And Jesus, Jesus articulates very clearly 
that these are the people who receive. They are the recipients of God's blessing, God's favour, God's grace. And then, of course, he balances that by showing that there are those on the converse of that that articulation, on the other side of that expression. And they are the ones who are made sad because they rely upon their comforts. They, They rely upon their fullness. They feel like they're winners every day. And they insult rather than receive insult. Well, here in chapter seven, we have four stories that really give us a demonstration of this proclamation. The thing that we said over and over again is that Jesus did not simply rest in proclamation. The reason that we're going to give opportunity to those who are wrestling today with personal concerns of sickness or, or struggle is because the Christian gospel is not simply a matter of proclamation of words, but it is a demonstration of grace. And in that demonstration, Jesus reveals the heart of the Father. And because we're followers of Jesus, because we're ones who want to emulate his life, of course, we must get past words and we must get into action. In fact, we heard last week, did we not? that genuine disciples of Jesus, who are the wise people who build their life on a rock, are those who hear words and put them into practice. And so today, we're gonna have a go at that. These four stories are fascinating. I'm gonna read one of them to you, and then I'm gonna talk about the other three uh, without actually reading them in the text because it would take us too long. But let me first of all read from Luke chapter seven and verse one. When Jesus had finished saying all these things in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Here is a man who has great status in Capernaum. Capernaum uh, is a, a town in the time of Jesus, a city in the time of Jesus that is laid out on the grid pattern 
that would be familiar to any person who lived in the Roman Empire at the time. This is not some kind of ramshackle dust bowl that perhaps we might have in our minds where people are just living in shacks and sheds. This is a prosperous town, well-known and well-positioned. The synagogue is a large building. The synagogue that you find there, the ruins of the synagogue you find there is a, a fourth century building, but it's built on the foundations of the building that Jesus used when he proclaimed the gospel in Capernaum. The building was just a stone's throw from his headquarters in Peter's house. You can stand on the steps of the synagogue and throw a rock and reach Peter's house. And this place of worship, this place of gathering, this civil and religious centre for the life of Capernaum had been supported by the work of this centurion. It's an interesting, interesting thing, you know, these, these men who were pretty much what we would describe as the regimental sergeant major, they were the kind of senior ranking non-commissioned officer of the day, the ones who were the backbone of every army. These, these characters so often are given really great press in the Bible. We're not quite sure what that is, but it seems as though the particular conditions of their life were such that it prepared them for receiving the gospel of Jesus. It was a centurion here in Capernaum that, that was the recipient of this amazing long-distance miracle. It was a centurion in the same region who was the very first Gentile and his household to receive the power of the Holy Spirit when Peter went to preach to them. So centurions have an interesting role in the life of Jesus and in the early years of the unfolding gospel. And here's a man who, on reflection, realizes that he has nothing to offer to a particular situation. This is a man who would normally be leaned upon by his senior officers because he would be the kind of person who would be able to step in and straighten out any situation. This is a person, because of his personal reserves and his, and his capacity and character, would be looked upon as his men, as a trustworthy leader. This is a person who did not expect to face situations that he could not overcome. And yet, here he was exposed by the fact that this beloved servant was going to die and he could do nothing about it. Now, are there things in your life where you look at the circumstances and the situation and you say, I can't do anything about it? Maybe you're the kind of person like me who, who gives it a good swing and tries to do something about it. But eventually you come to this disturbing conclusion that for all of your usual 
ability and capacity, you're not able to solve this particular situation. What happens, what happens is that this kind of sense of aching void within opens up. You, you realize that, that the usual sense of capacity that you have to face any situation is now no longer able to meet the particular conditions of your crisis. That's what's happened here. It's as though there, there is an emptiness within the centurion. There's a, there's a sense of desire for something. He wants the servant healed, but he has nothing within him that can make it possible. He sends the elders. The elders do their best. Jesus is on his way. And as he's considering this, he begins to realize that he's asked Jesus to do something that really is extraordinarily bold. He's a Gentile and he's asked a Jewish leader to come to his home and make himself ceremonially unclean by visiting his home. And he realizes that he's completely unworthy of such a gift. Why should he ask Jesus for such a gift. And so he sends word and says, I, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. And then goes on to say, I know what it's like to be a person under authority and a person with authority. And I know I have no authority in this situation, but I know that you do. So just say the word. And Jesus calls that great faith. Now, maybe, you know, you're familiar with watching television services and, and teachers and preachers and, and great faith looks like a strain where you can see the veins on the neck. And it's kind of... <laughs> like that. Jesus doesn't describe that as great faith. He probably calls it, I don't know, constipation or something. <laughs> but, um, but what Jesus calls great faith, what Jesus calls great faith is a simple recognition of authority. Isn't that interesting? That simple recognition that he is empty of solutions, that he has nothing to offer this situation, suggests that he's not going to get anything unless God does it. That is what Jesus calls great faith. As Jesus is portrayed by Luke, Moving around the region, we find him next in a town called Nan. Nan is about the same distance from Nazareth as we are from the center of Dayton. So, you know, if you're walking at a fairly good pace, you can get to the center of Dayton in a couple of hours. It's six miles away. So Nan to Nazareth is 
a short distance really for people that are familiar with walking and, and getting around. It may well also be the region, as uh, Jackie was telling me earlier in the, in the week, where Elijah was with the widow of Zarephath and saw her son raised from the dead. But here in this little town that still exists today by the same name, Jesus comes to share the good news. And before he has the chance to say anything, his father prompts him to do something. He comes to the town, and as he's entering the town, there's a group of people leaving the town. They're going to bury a young man, the only son of a widow. Now, for us, that's a terrible state of affairs. In those days, it was catastrophic because the woman would undoubtedly become destitute, often forced into penury, forced into begging, and in the worst circumstances, first into, forced into prostitution. This, this terrible state of affairs is the state of affairs that's come to this woman. And it says that the heart of Jesus went out to her because he had so much compassion on her. And he came to the, the beer that, um, that's not the drink, but the, 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 the little thing that they were carrying the man out on, the coffin. And he touches it. Now here's the thing, most people, including his disciples, would have been utterly shocked by Jesus doing that. Because that meant that for seven days, Jesus was now basically incommunicado. He was not able to function in ordinary everyday life for the next seven days. He's touched a dead body. The people that are carrying the dead body out and to bury him, they were doing this as a service and with no small degree of sacrifice on behalf of the widow because that would be their lot as well. For seven days, they would be unclean. But here's the thing about Jesus. When Jesus touches the unclean thing, he makes it clean. Isn't that awesome? You see, we think that when we touch the unclean thing, the unclean thing makes the clean thing unclean. You've got to follow along now, don't we? We would imagine, just like the Jewish people at the time, that when you touch an unclean thing, the clean thing becomes unclean because the clean thing has touched the unclean thing and so therefore the uncleanness has been communicated to the cleanness and the cleanness has become unclean. Yeah, all, all following along? But actually, what happens is that the clean thing touches the unclean thing and the unclean thing becomes clean. We're so afraid of contamination that we never touch the unclean. Jesus was not afraid of contamination because you see, Jesus was always on the front foot wanting to change a situation 
not having that situation change him. And boy, was it a change. I don't know what the guys did when the young man sat up. My, my guess is that they dropped the thing that they were carrying. And then Jesus had to heal his bad back because he'd been fought, you know, onto the ground. But I mean, I don't know. But, um, but there's going to be an awful lot of shock around the place, isn't there? The, the, the couple of times within my world where people have been raised from the dead, in, in Western context, I'm obviously worldwide context where I've had uh, contact, it happens a lot. But, um, but they both happened in hospitals. They both happened with a small church that isn't known for its healing ministry. And uh, both completely shocked the medical staff who were getting the body ready for the usual disposal. And a couple of people went in on both occasions, one in Yorkshire, another one just outside of Oklahoma. Can anything good? But yes, it could. <laughs> just outside of Oklahoma City in Norman, they, they went in and they prayed and it was a desperate situation. A father who was much loved, much needed. He sat up in bed and by all accounts was as shocked as everybody else. These things still happen, of course. God is the same God today as he ever was in the past. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But it's unlikely that we're going to see similar moments of miraculous transformation if we're principally concerned about our own dignity, about our own security and about our own cleanness. Then the narrative moves again. Jesus is healing the sick and raising the dead and cleansing the lepers and some people come to him to talk to him. They kind of interrupt the flow of ministry. And the people who come to him are disciples of John the Baptist. John has been imprisoned by Herod, probably in his winter palace down by the Sea of Galilee. John is alone. He's in his dungeon and is probably aware that he will never get out alive. And perhaps in the darkness, depression sets in. And a kind of anxiety that is entirely understandable. John is trapped, he can't do anything, he can't change anything. Now he just has to rely on those who help and support him. And his question perhaps is this, have I run my race in vain? And so he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, is this what we've been waiting for? Are you the promised Messiah? Now, John knew that Jesus was the promised Messiah when Jesus got into the water to be baptized. So this is, this is a moment of internal conflict where we're looking into the soul of a godly, good man. It's entirely 
to be expected that whoever we are, however long we've been in the race, however mature we are in the fight, that we'll come to these moments. And what does Jesus do? Does he send the disciples back with a treatise on the prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament? Does he send them back with an apologetic for his mission and ministry? What he says to the disciples of John is fascinating. He says, just look at it. Verse 22. Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Go back and report what you've seen and heard. The gospel is a gospel of proclamation, but it is a gospel in the ministry of Jesus that also had a demonstration. And here's the question that we have to wrestle with. Are we the kind of Christians who are prepared to live in this feeling of struggle, this feeling of poverty of spirit, this sense of incapacity so that God is able to do the demonstration as well as the proclamation. It's a great, it's a great challenge, you know, when you just count up the verses in the Gospels. If you took the shortest Gospel, Mark, and you just looked at the chapters and verses that include the ministry of Jesus, I think it's 47% of all of the verses refer to the healing ministry of Jesus. About half of it. What percentage of your time as house churches do you spend in praying for healing? What percentage of time do we spend in seeking healing for those who are locked up in their prison of anxiety and depression. Is this coming through to anybody? Is this, is this? It's working, yeah. I just wanted to check. You're all with me, aren't you? That's why we have to fully embrace the whole ministry of Jesus. And understand what it means to proclaim the gospel, but also demonstrate it. And as we step into that, what will be exposed is a poverty of spirit. We'll be like John. We'll be left wondering. But when we're left wondering, Jesus is able to step in with signs and wonders. Finally, 
in this remarkable chapter, we see Jesus being invited into the home of a well-known evangelical. He's one of the, he's one of the religious leaders who's well-known for his, his theological orthodoxy. And Jesus is invited to the home for a meal, but the account that Jesus gives of that welcome is not quite the account that perhaps the person who's invited thinks that should be shared with everybody. Because when Jesus arrives, he's not embraced by the householder. He's not given the kiss of welcome. He's not invited to sit while someone washes his feet from the dust that he's carried through the day. He's not been invited to refresh himself before he gathers with everybody else at the meal. He comes in as an outsider. And there he is reclining at table. In those days, it may be a low table, very low, or maybe even set on the floor. And there would be a cushion under one arm, often the left arm here, and you would recline. And so you'd be laid out in kind of like petal formations around the eating area. The host, the householder would be at the head of the gathering and then others would gather around. And as that's going on, a woman known for her promiscuous life comes into the gathering and she stands at the feet of Jesus and begins to weep. And as she weeps, she sees that her tears are wetting the feet of Jesus. And so she kneels and takes her hair that is not covered, indicating that she's probably a prostitute because uncovered heads and open long hair is a kind of sign and symbol of that particular profession. And with her long hair, she's wiping his feet and she's taking a perfumed alabaster jar and pouring the perfume out on Jesus' feet. It's the best that she has to offer. It's, it's the fragrance that, that indicates to passers-by that perhaps a, a house of ignoble deeds is on this street. And so the symbols of her profession are the best that she is able to offer in desperation for forgiveness and help. And the religious people look down on her, insult her, but also have shown that they insult Jesus. So they're familiar with that because they think that they're right all the time, you see. And it's easy to get involved in Twitter wars when you think that you're right all the time. It's easy to, to judge other people when you're convinced of your own rectitude and righteousness. And Jesus says... Simon, when I came to your home, you did not welcome me in the normal fashion. And yet this woman has done all of that to the maximum that she's able. 
He says, who do you think would love me more? People who've been forgiven just a little bit of what they think they may have done wrong occasionally by mistake. Or a person who knows that they are a flagrant sinner. Who do you think loves me more, Simon? Each of these stories tells us the attitude of Jesus to those who are the recipients of the kingdom. To a man of power and influence who has come to the end of his power and influence and knows that he's empty of any authority to do anything about the circumstances that he faces, Jesus steps in. To a woman who faces catastrophic loss, Jesus says, do not cry and raises her son and wipes away her tears by the demonstration of the gospel. To a man trapped in desperation and depression, Jesus sends word to him that he would fully understand and fully be able to comprehend that he truly is the Messiah and the Messiahship of Jesus is revealed in what it is that he's doing, not simply in what it is that he's saying. Yes, the poor have the good news preached to them, but the blind have their eyes opened and the dead are raised and the lepers are cleansed. And to the lost, alienated, marginalised sinner. Jesus offers forgiveness and grace. When Jesus touched the unclean thing, he made it clean. When Jesus was touched by the unclean woman, he was not made unclean but he made her clean through forgiveness. Don't you love Jesus? Don't you love Jesus? He's amazing. And he's the one that we follow and he's the one that we emulate and he's the one that we want to learn, we want to learn from so that we can more effectively proclaim his gospel more effectively demonstrate his gospel. And that means that we have to learn. So right now, we're going to do a little bit of that. We're going to learn a little bit of what it means to be demonstrators as well as proclaimers of the gospel. So here's, here's some, just some opening questions. Just indicate by your by putting your hands up, are there folks here today who have physical conditions that they're wrestling with right now? Yep, quite a few people. Are there, now this is more personal, but we, we don't want to expose you in any way, certainly not expose you to any embarrassment, but are there those of you who are wrestling with emotional issues that cause you to feel somewhat alone and isolated right now? A bit like John, a bit like John in his, in his prison. Now, what I'd like to do is um, 
if the band want to come back up, if you can move that whiteboard as well when you come up. What I'd like to do is, um, is to do this. The band are going to come and they're going to provide us with a kind of a, a platform of worship. They're going to lead us just very quietly in No Longer Slaves Again. So we'll, we'll have that going on in the background. That'll be a kind of a supportive reminder of the Lord's presence. Of course, the Lord's presence is here. And what I'd like us to do is I'd like us to get a minimum of two people and perhaps a maximum of four people around each of the folks who are prepared to stand and have others pray with them. And what we're going to do is we're going to do what we do as a prayer team when we pray at the end of the service and what we see Jesus doing all the time. First of all, we're going to stand in the recognition that Jesus is in the business of revealing his kingship. And so whatever happens to the physical conditions, and we're expecting healing, but whatever happens to the physical conditions, we're expecting Jesus to minister to the hearts and the lives of the people who we're praying for. We're expecting him to do that. That's our expectation, that he will reveal the kingdom. When we, when we stand to pray, we're going to be praying in a way that's appropriate. So we're building a, a relationship of equality with the person that we're praying for. Very often when people are being prayed for, they feel, they feel exposed. They feel like this is a kind of an odd experience and, and they, don't really, they don't really find it very comfortable. But we're going to, as we pray, make the people who we're praying for feel as comfortable and as well blessed and embraced as possible. We're going to lay our hands on them appropriately. We're not going to put hands on people's heads. That's a kind of a, a position of authority uh, that we might need at some place. But right now, we're just going to appropriately lay hands on people. And so we're going to expect a revelation of God's kingdom. We're going to relate to one another appropriately. And we're going to represent Jesus as we pray.